ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. Everything has a soul. In this podcast, Eckhart talks about an inspiring trip he took to Alaska. He describes the awe he felt on a tour through a majestic forest. Eckhart explains at one point he lagged behind his guided tour group so he could feel the sacredness of the nature around him. He says we have lost touch with a form of knowing which transcends conceptual learning. He believes beyond our five senses, there is a more profound form of knowing that we must revive. Eckhart explains, ancient people sense the aliveness of the world around them. He says, when we define our existence only through mental concepts, sacredness is lost. Eckhart believes, for the sake of the planet and ourselves, we need to realize that everything is alive. Everything has a soul. If I had sufficient time, I would experience the forest alone, non-conceptually, and walk through it, just being there as the perceiving presence and sense it deeply, connect with it at a deep level, free of concepts, just pure experiencing of the, not only individual life forms, but the totality of that energy field. And then, at the end of that walk or hike, if somebody had asked me, what have you learned about the forest, I would have to say, nothing. I haven't learned anything, not conceptually. I have experienced it deeply, but conceptually I don't, don't know any more about it. But I knew it. I was able to know the forest in a different way because that is also a kind of knowing. And then, perhaps the next day, if I had still been there, would have asked the guide for a tour of the forest with explanations and learnings. And on the third day, I would go through the forest again and have both dimensions. I know something about it, but I'm not trapped in my conceptual knowledge. I'm also able to step out of my conceptual knowledge and know the forest more deeply than I could ever know it through concepts. And that is the balance between the two modalities of knowing. Everybody in this world is familiar with the, the, the first modality of knowing, that's all we know. But we lost knowledge of the other modality of knowing. We don't, very few humans have access to it, but in the past, all over the world, humans had that, had access to that way of knowing. Because in all 
indigenous cultures, whether it's in South America or North America or Polynesia or Australia or Asia, China, Taoism, a very deep empathy with the natural world and the energies behind the natural world. I mean, also in ancient Europe, also the uh, that deep connectedness with nature, the Druids, the ancient tribes in England, the Germanic tribes, and so on, and the Romans and the Greeks, they all had it. So with reference to indigenous cultures, the anthropologists call it animism, animism from animus, the soul, that everything has a soul that was... Now, how is it that all over the world, different cultures came to the same conclusion or had the same belief. How is that possible? Well, the answer is simple. It wasn't a belief. It wasn't a mental thing. They all had the ability to sense that. So it was sensing a reality underlying sensory perception. There's more to, to the world than sensory perception. What is accessible to us through sensory perception. And then the conceptual mind became more and more developed in humans. And through this overdevelopment of the conceptual mind, they gradually lost the ability to sense the aliveness in the environment, and especially in the natural world through excessive conceptualization. And through excessive conceptualization, also the ego grew stronger and stronger because the ego is a conceptual sense of self. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. So re, re, you reduce the world to mental concepts. And not only the world, you reduce yourself to a mental concept. And that becomes a mental image that you live with, you call it me. And so that was the enormous price we had to pay, so to speak, for our gain in scientific knowledge, uh, technology, and so on. We gained enormous knowledge there, and we lost something equally enormous. And then, of course, as a result of excessive or extreme conceptualization, then in the 19th century, we began to develop seriously science and industry. The Industrial Revolution happened in England. Darwin came along and discovered, well, he wasn't, other people also discovered it even before him, but he became famous, as everybody knows, through the discovery of the evolution of species. Obviously, it wasn't quite a realization that there has been, there is an evolution, there has been an evolution. But the unfortunate thing is that uh, the evolution is regarded as a random process. According to this theory, there is no intelligence behind it, and not even 
a purpose except perhaps survival of the fittest. So there's no, as the theory of evolution came and began to come into serious conflict with obviously with Christianity and etc. And gradually that seeped into the collective consciousness or unconsciousness and even humans who had never even heard of Darwin became affected by this. It seeped into the, into the culture, the belief that the universe actually is meaningless. It doesn't make sense because it's a random coming together of molecules and atoms and it is devoid of any kind of purpose. And that seeped into the consciousness of humans, even though humans had never heard of the theory of evolution. And that became gradually part of the mainstream belief system and culture. And still, to this day, many scientists, but not all, have this belief that uh, the material world is all there is and that all evolutionary processes are random events. And so the entire universe that we see is a random coming together of atoms and molecules. The beauty we see, or the beauty we create, everything is meaningless according to that. Before we had this idea that the belief, a Christian story, the story, biblical story of creation, God created is less a kind of architect, created gradually uh, the world. And then the idea of God gradually disappeared and when Nietzsche discovered in the 19th century when he was writing his famous realization that he called God is dead. Uh, I don't think he referred to the actual God, because that would not be possible, but to humans God would be become dead. And God, meaning the, the there is a greater, deeper, higher intelligence behind uh, creation. And then we came into conflict with nature, and we started to destroy nature, because we lost the ability to sense the sacredness of nature, which all the ancient cultures had. And we could, because we could no longer sense the aliveness of it, and then we had the belief that it's all meaningless anyway, it's all random. Now there are many scientists, that, other scientists that say, well, there isn't enough time for the, this universe to have come into existence as an orderly universe a cosmos, cosmos means order as opposed to chaos, there would just even billions of years would not be enough time for randomly these things coming together as they are. There's a famous example of the monkey and the typewriter. It goes back to the time when people used typewriters, but nowadays it would be the monkey on the keyboard so if you, according to this, if you give the monkey enough time, the monkey, of course, randomly will type in numbers on the keyboard. If, they give, if you give the monkey enough time, eventually the monkey will come up with one of the works of Shakespeare. <laughs> now, how long would that take? 
and probably billions of years. Probably even that would take more than the entire uh, lifespan of the universe as we know it. I've heard another slightly funny similar story. Somebody is inviting some people for a sumptuous, fantastic dinner, beautifully cooked and prepared, and they enjoy this fantastic dinner, best ingredients, and at the dinner they are, they're asking, is there a chef? Does a chef exist? The cook. Is there a cook? Do you understand? <laughs> <laughs> It's, a, it's an absurd question because obviously there is a chef. You had this wonderful dinner, there must be a chef, but you are questioning it. You can't, I don't believe there is a chef uh, uh, because I can't see him. He's probably gone home. Uh, uh, the chef has retired and the dinner has come into existence, into existence randomly. Uh, it cooked itself. So we, uh, it is not necessary for us to believe that the ancient humans, indigenous people, ancient people th throughout the world, we do not need to believe the same thing that they believed or they didn't just believe it, they sensed it. It's not for, for us to, to persuade, convince ourselves that there is an intelligence behind th th all that, an organizing principle, a power, a spirit presence that pervades the universe. It's not a belief. The question is, are we able to regain the ability to sense that? That is the question, not changing our belief system. It's nothing to do with belief. In fact, every belief is a hindrance because it's a concept. Are we able to regain this ability to sense the aliveness that pervades the universe throughout the universe? Not only the ancient indigenous culture spoke of it. Later on, also the great religions of the world came to that realization. The, in Hinduism and in Taoism in China especially, they had a very deep ability to sense that which is hidden, the energy that is hidden behind our sense perception and the spirit presence. This is um, true religion is the ability to sense the ultimate sacredness of the universe, which includes you, to sense that. True religion isn't really a conceptual belief system that is that comes in later or it comes when humans perhaps lose the ability then religion becomes conceptualized and it becomes in many cases 
when you lose the, the ability to sense that when you lose that completely and then you, you still have a, a religion, then the, your religion has become an ideology. It then has become an ideology which is mental constructs and not only that, you identify with it, those mental constructs. In other words, they become incorporated in, into your egoic sense of identity. And so religions have, in many cases, become incorporated into the human ego and become corrupted because originally they originated from the deep realizations. And then gradually, in many cases, not in all cases, doesn't apply to every human being, but in roughly speaking, it's become lost and become replaced with mental concepts. In Christianity, if you say, I believe that this and this and this happened, then you are saved. I don't think that's true, because if you, it, it just means I believe that the story that somebody's telling me is correct. It's a story, I have no way of verifying whether it's correct or not, but I believe it's correct, therefore I'm saved. Uh, of course, throughout history, many Christians said they believed that, and, and very obviously they were not saved, because or quite often they did dreadful things. But perhaps there have always been some individuals who were able to go deeper in every religion, including Christianity. And usually it's not been the people who were in the hierarchy, high up in the uh, hierarchy of the establishment, the established churches. Those humans, I don't know how many of them, who were still able to sense the deeper truth that is the core of all religions, they tended to be the humble and simple people who had a low place in the hierarchy of the established churches and religious structures, simple monks and nuns quite often. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. So we need to dwell on this for a little longer. I was going to have a question and answer session here, but whether or not this will happen, I don't know yet, because I don't know how much more I will be saying now. There's a little bit more I need to add. And as soon as I run out of things to say, we'll have questions. And, uh, 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 this could be tomorrow. Uh, uh, I have here, I want to just read to you just a few lines from the Tao Te Ching. If those of you who haven't read the Tao Te Ching, the great book, Chinese uh, book written approximately 2,500 years ago, 500 BC, at approximately the same time that the Buddha lived, but no connection. Um, there are many, many translations. I have about seven or eight. And the, the, you should probably read at least two or three translations and compare them. The few lines that I just want to read to you, just an illustration of what we've been talking about. 
This is translated by Stephen Mitchell, which is a good translation. Another good translation is by Jane English. And there are many others. Some of them are also quite good. The word used to describe that spirit presence that underlies the universe is the Tao, is the word for that is used here. That Chinese spirituality uses the term the Tao. This book speaks of the Tao, the Tao Te Ching, Tao Te Ching. The really translated Tao Te Ching, uh, the real translation is the, the power of the Tao. Sometimes they say it's the virtue of the Tao, but it's not, it's the power of the Tao. Uh, basically, it means the power of now. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and it says at the beginning of the very book, in the fir first line, it says, you can't really talk about the Tao. The Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. In some translations, it's not the real Tao. The name that can be named is not the eternal name. The unnameable is the eternally real. And then, of course, he starts talking, continues talking about it, and then it becomes a book. So first he says, you can't talk about it, and then he talks about it. <laughs> uh, uh, and somehow it works, although, you know, it's, all the words are just pointers. They're not explanations. It's, there's nothing to believe in. They're just pointers. Either they work for you or they don't. As pointers, as signposts. So just a few lines, just an illustration of what we've just been talking about. There was something formless and perfect before the universe was born. It is serene, empty, solitary, unchanging, infinite, eternally present. It is the mother of the universe. For lack of a better name, I call it the Tao. It flows through all things. And now the translator has a little footnote and points to a quote by a scientist, Albert Einstein, which happens to be my favorite quote by Einstein, who said many wonderful things. And he mentioned it in, in the back of the book. Uh, this was Einstein's answer when somebody asked him whether he was religious. And so he said, he starts by saying, the scientist's religious feeling, he described it as the scientist's religious feeling is like this. What he really means is my religious feeling. But he says the scientist, I don't believe most scientists have that religious feeling that he's talking about. So he's really talking about himself, his religious feeling. So that's how I'm going to read it now. My religious feeling takes the form of a rapturous amazement at the harmony of natural law. 
which reveals an intelligence of such superiority that, in comparison with it, all the systematic thinking of human beings is an utterly insignificant reflection. This feeling is the guiding principle of my life and work. Now this means that I believe that he had to some extent the ability still to sense that, that most humans had lost. He had the ability to sense that. And he was very much, had a connectedness with being more than a, a normal regular scientist which was very much totally immersed in mental concepts. He developed very slowly as a child too. He learned to speak at a quite a late age. And when he was around four years old, he wasn't, just didn't speak very much. His conceptual mind was not that active. And he continued to, to have this ability to completely switch off when he went out for walks in nature. And I read somewhere that the theory of relativity actually came to him when he was not thinking, he was actually lying in his bathtub. One more quote, and this is from the Upanishads, another great, well, this is a selection of some of the Upanishads. There's over a hundred Upanishads. They're the ancient scriptures of Hinduism. Some go back, the oldest ones go back 800 years BC, 2,800 years, and then written over a long time span. This book I've had for probably 40 years. It's a little paperback. The pages are beginning to turn yellow. That's how old I am. <laughs> and I'll have to tell you something before I read this about I love books, not only for the content, but also for their simple presence. Now, this is not an expensive book, it's a simple paperback. But I've had it for so long, and I can, many of my books I can identify by smell. <laughs> I have this habit since childhood, I've always smelled books and loved handling them. They are little, they're, they're little beings. <laughs> In Hinduism, that spirit presence that underlies the universe is called Brahman. Brahman is, has no form. Brahman is the intelligence that underlies all manifestation and pervades the universe. When you realize Brahman within yourself, that's called Atman. Atman is the, the divinity within you, that is the pure consciousness that you are, is Atman. That spirit presence that pervades this, uh, the universe within you can be realized. The essence of it is the consciousness that you are. There's a little line here in one of the Upanishads that says, we should consider that in the inner world, Brahman is consciousness, and that's Atman. And we should consider that in the outer world, and this is interesting, it says in the outer world, 
Brahman is space. Now that's interesting for a moment. Let's see if we consider that possibility that space is spirit presence. In the inner realm, it's the inner space of consciousness. These are just little pointers, nothing to believe in. Either they work for you as pointers or they don't. It's space is spirit presence. Oh. And when you become present, thinking subsides, awareness remains, then you may be able to sense that this presence that is within you is also without, meaning outside. There is a presence that is both within and without. So you can sense, when you become present within, you can sense that there is a presence that pervades the universe, even in this room. So, in theistic terms, you could say that presence, what we describe as presence, that spiritual presence, is this, the presence of God. One could almost say this beautiful presence is a state of, an analogy one could use, is in a state of acute listening. But it's not really listening, we just use listening as an analogy. It's as if you were listening for a distant sound that requires a high degree of alertness. But there is no sound. And what remains is the listening itself. But what is the listening in this analogy? The listening is pure presence, pure consciousness, because there's nothing to listen to if there's silence. It's just the, but the, so the listening really is the consciousness that's behind the listening. And this is, uh, I believe, why Jesus had a few parables about waiting. You're waiting, somebody is waiting for the return of the, of the master. So he's waiting. The master could come at any moment and the servant is waiting and has to stay awake and listen because the master could come at any time. This is interpreted in a certain way in conventional Christianity, but I believe that it is an analogy and it points towards a certain state of consciousness. And that state of consciousness is a state of wakefulness, spiritual wakefulness. And it actually, somewhere in the Gospels, Jesus says, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. <laughs> stay awake. So there are parables about staying awake and in being in an attitude as if you were in an attitude of alert listening. When you're in that attitude and then you go out into nature, then you, you begin to be able to sense what the ancients were able to sense, the, the presence that is there beyond the outer manifestations. 
and this is a, just a little simple, very simple little story about a father and a son having a conversation. And the, the father says, bring me a fruit from this banyan tree. And the son comes and says, here it is, father, break it. It is broken, sir. He calls his father, sir. That's in ancient cultures, you show great respect towards your parents. So it is broken, sir. What do you see in it? Very small seeds, sir. Break one of them, my son. It is broken, sir. What do you see in it? Nothing at all, sir. Then his father spoke to him, my son, from the very essence in the seed which you cannot see comes in truth this vast banyan tree. Believe me, my son, an invisible and subtle essence is the spirit of the whole universe. That is reality, that is Atman, thou art that, you are that. Tat Twam Asi in Sanskrit, thou art that, you are that. So that spirit presence is not just out there, it is the essence of who you are, of what you are. So it's regaining this and then this is the only way we can go beyond the, the meaninglessness of our civilization that will destroy it unless a sufficient number of humans are able to go deeper and reconnect with the transcendent dimension. When you have lost something and then you find it again, you regain it, you regain it at a deeper level. For example, the ancient uh, cultures, they lived in more in harmony with nature. Then we lost that because we couldn't sense the aliveness and sacredness of nature anymore. And now the possibility arises of regaining that. But there will be an added dimension to it because for them, that was their, their natural state of connectedness. Before the human ego developed, human beings probably, most likely, lived in a less problematic state than humans are now because the ego creates an enormous amount of dysfunction and suffering. So there was a time when humans lived in natural connectedness with being still, in the same way that plants and animals, they, they are naturally connected with being. And humans then, they lost that. They had it before, and the, that most likely explains, in all cultures you have the myth of ancient times, the so-called golden age, when there was happiness and harmony on the planet. Many ancient cultures have the same mythological tales of the golden age. Even the paradise in the Bible could be inter interpreted in that way. When humans lived in natural connectedness and then they began to develop the ability to think, which was an enormous enormous event. Perhaps that is 
symbolized in the Bible by eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to be able to divide and say this is that, that is that. So it could point to the beginning of thinking, the thinking function which was the end of paradise in the same way that the ancient mythological tale of from ancient Greece of a young man called Narcissus and this mythological story contains deep wisdom because it points to the arising of the human ego which is to have an, an image that you carry of yourself and you have a relationship with it and it makes you unhappy so that's enormous wisdom contained there in, in those tales. The myth of the golden age, natural connectedness with being was then lost, but it can be regained. When we regain it, we are then consciously connected to the being dimension instead of you're unconsciously connected because you don't know anything else. You've never not have it. You, if, if you have something, if you have an, something in your life that you were born with, a beautiful thing, you've never not had it. You, yes, it's fine. You, it's fine. You live with it. But if you then lost it and then regained it, found it again, you would appreciate it at a much deeper level. So there is an added dimension when you lose something and then you regain it you regain it at a deeper level. As we regain this connectedness with being that humans lost a long time ago, before the arising of ego, then we regain it as ego begins to be transcended, we are able to regain that connectedness, but now being fully conscious of it, of your connectedness with it. It's a big difference. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Eckhart Tolle, Essential Teachings, the podcast. You can follow these essential teachings on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you haven't yet, go to Spotify and follow this podcast. Join us next week for more enlightened teachings from Eckhart Tolle. Thank you for listening.